All right, today we are finishing up our series, We Are Impact Church. If you've missed any, I highly recommend you go on our website and go um, check back on, on um, some of the things we've talked about. But um, today, as I was getting ready for today, I was thinking about how um, I can be a fairly competitive guy. Um, I, don't, I don't like losing. It's not that I need to win. It's I like to win. I prefer to win. I have to win. But it's not like a compulsive need to win. But so when I play a game... I do everything I can to win the game. And why wouldn't you? Why play a game if you're not going to do that, have that attitude? I want you, if I'm playing against you, I want you to have that attitude too. Because when I beat you, which I will, when that happens, I know you gave your best shot. Because of my competitive spirit, though, there are times that I can go a little overboard with my desire to win. Especially when I'm around my wife, who does not care about winning. Um, one of Erica's favorite games um, is a game called Monopoly Deal. Monopoly Deal, it's uh, Monopoly but it's cards, and uh, it only takes 20 minutes instead of three months to finish it. So, um, so we, we, played, we, we got the game, we started playing it. Erica's not competitive at all, and it normally means she doesn't win because she doesn't really care about winning. So, because she's like, I don't care, so I'm really trying hard to win. But for some reason, Monopoly Deal is a game she just understands how to beat me in. Every time we play, she wins. I don't know why. Every time, it's, it's, I don't get it, she always does it. And one night, we were staying home, having a, having a date night, and Erica's like, hey, you want to play Monopoly Deal? And I'm like, no, because I lose. But I love my wife, so I said, okay, if you want to play it, I want you to know I'm playing in protest. I don't want to do this, but I'll play. We play. Um, Erica, who doesn't care about winning, she's playing, and uh, we play it firsthand, and she wins. Shocker. Um, I, I was like, it's okay, not a fan of it, but I'll play again. Then we play a second time. And now I'm noticeably getting upset because I'm losing again. And she's noticing it. She's like, man, you're, you're, you don't like losing. I'm like, yeah, I don't. And so we, again, we played. She won again. So let's play a third time. Like, I really, Erica, I really don't want to play anymore. I'm hating every second of this, but she lets us play. So we're playing, and not to explain the game too much to you, but at one point, I am ready to win. Next turn, she's going to go. My turn, it's over. Game's over. I'm about to put a card down, get certain things. She's done. So I'm ready. I'm like, kind of get a little cocky, like, go ahead, good luck. And I don't know what she did. It had to be cheating. But she did something, and the way she played her cards, she took everything I had. So it went from I was for sure going to win to there's no chance. I'm done. I lost. And here's what I did to the mother of my children and the wife I've been married to for 12 years. I took my cards, and I threw it in her face and said, I'm not playing anymore ever again. I'll never play this game again. I did. And what she said, she said, play again, you little baby. That was the correct description. I kept on Erica, if I play again, I'm going to continue to sin with the way I react to you. We need to stop, okay? I cannot, and I have not played that game since. I refuse. I will never play it again. I, I'm naturally competitive, okay? That's just, I'm naturally competitive. And it isn't always, it can be a bad thing, but it isn't always a bad thing. If you've ever taken um, strength finders, which is an assessment you can take, um, I took it, and one of my top five strengths were, was competition. That, that was a strength of mine that I am competitive. Because when you utilize competition correctly and when you're healthy about it, you figure out goals to, so that you can be successful, so that you can work towards other goals and eventually get better and better. Every really good athlete, they're competitive, and that's why they are so good at what they do. So when, when you use competition in a good way, in a healthy way, you can see what other people are doing, and it can push you to be a better version of yourself because you're trying to get better. Other competition can actually can invigorate you. But what happens when the church itself, when any church starts to become competitive 
with other churches? Is that the way that God has designed the idea of the, of the church? Is that the way that we are supposed to operate? As we're just competition and someone else's competition, just like McDonald's and Burger King are competition with each other. Is that how we, how we are supposed to look when it comes to other churches? What happens when the church starts to look side to side or across the street and see that other church and think, that is who I'm competing against. That's my opponent. That's my adversary. And this happens all the time. I've seen it happen in other churches. I've been part of it. I felt it. I remember before this church, I, was a, I worked at another church plant, and my brother, in case you don't know, my younger brother also planted a church. He planted a church uh, maybe eight years ago at this point. And I remember when he went to go plant, uh, he, he planted a city on a hill, which they're in Savage now, and when they did, a lot of people left connections, the church I was at, to go there. And I was furious with him about it. I remember talking to him, like, why are you stealing all of our people? Exactly what I thought. He's like, I didn't ask anyone. I'm sorry. It's just the people came. Why? Because I was getting competitive with my brother. Maybe there's a brother dynamic added to that too. But it's, it's an, it can easily happen. But the question I have for us as we get ready to close out this series and we really look to the future, is that what we should be doing? Is every church that's out here just competition to us? Is that the way we should look at church? Is that the way that God designed church? Because throughout this series, we, we've been using this verse, and this has been our verse for this entire series. It'll be our verse for the, for the future. It says, forget the former things. God talking. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. So what we've been learning is that we cannot see a new way ahead until we, when we are focusing on the old way. We've been celebrating the past. We just celebrated our five years last, last Sunday, which was great. We were celebrating that. But where are we called to go in the future? What is the new way he's taken us? And throughout this whole series, as we've talked about, if you haven't been here, week one, we talked about how we at Emma Church, Impact Church, we help people know Jesus. Week two, we said we help others find community. Last week, we talked about how we make a difference. That's our goal. And today, we're talking about how we care about kingdom growth, not our growth. As we turn the page from, year, from five years, the first five to the next five, this needs to be in our DNA, that we are not here just to make Impact Church the biggest thing it can be. We are not, our, our goal is not to make our kingdom grow, it's to make the kingdom of God grow. And we need to talk about this because this isn't our natural state. Naturally, we get competitive. Naturally, we get envious. Naturally, we compare ourselves to somebody else. Because here's really what, what I want to talk about today. Church should have a biblical model, not a business model. Now, I got my bachelor's degree in business management. Um, when, I was a, when I was a junior in college, I remember that's when I really felt like God was calling me to, to go be a pastor. And I remember thinking, I was, I was finished this degree, but I don't, this degree is going to be worthless. I don't know why I'm finishing it. I'm going to be a pastor one day. It actually turned out to be very beneficial, especially in the launching process, um, to have a business management degree. But too often, we measure success of a church the same way we measure success of a business. If you open a business, how do you know if it's successful? Here's how you know. If you have customers, if you have a good product, and you make money. If you do those things, you're successful as a business, right? And too often, we've taken the business model, especially that America pushes, and we put it towards the church. And be like, that should be the model for church as well. The way we're successful at church is if attendance is growing, we have new visitors, if we build a state-of-the-art building, and if tithes and offerings are up. That's how we know if we're successful. Um, it's a, another thing I've heard it called is the three Bs, butts, bucks, and baptisms. If there's butts in the seats, bucks in the plate, and baptisms in the tub, then the church is being successful and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But when I read the church in the New Testament, and when I read the gospel reality, it's very clear scripturally that the success of a church 
does not necessitate any of those things we talked about. Now, uh, let me be clear. I do believe systems are a good thing. I do believe when we put systems in place that it can be a good thing, that um, we should have appropriate budgets and we should stick to them. I don't think it's a bad thing to have outreach events to try to bring new people in. I don't think it's bad to encourage people to get baptized. We do all those things. None of those things are bad. In fact, it would be irresponsible for us to not do those things. However, when you have a business model of a church that your only goal is to increase the individual church that you're a part of, and compared to a biblical model of a church, we are going against what the church was meant to be. Paul um, was one of the greatest church planners that has ever been. He planted many, many churches. After his encounter with Jesus, the, the risen Savior, he goes on to start planning all these churches. He goes from the biggest enemy against this movement that they called the way back then to the biggest advocate and the biggest leader of it. So Paul plants all these churches, and if you read the New Testament, a lot of his letters, basically all of his letters, are letters that he wrote to the churches that he helped plant. And in one of his letters, he wrote a letter to a church, the church in Corinth. And they're having some quarreling, and they're being divided, and it's fascinating to me how similar it is to the way we see church done in our country. And here's, here's what it says, the first Corinthians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, first Corinthians chapter 3, start verse 1, it'll be on the screen as well. Here's Paul talking to this church, it says this, brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Here's what he's doing. He's addressing the church, and he's using this analogy. He's saying, hey, um, I have to keep giving you milk because you're children. You should have grown up by now. You're in the church, but you're still acting like, like kids. I'm going to treat you like a child. Paul is saying they're still acting like a child. Then he gives the reason why he's saying this. And look at the reason why he's saying this. They're divided up. They're fighting. And he gives the reason why he's calling them children. Here's what he says. Verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere humans? If you don't know who Apollos was, Apollos was a first century Jewish Christian. He was a colleague of Paul. He played an important role in the development of the church in Ephesus and the development of the church in Corinth, which is the letter that we are reading here today. The division of the church really took that church and divided it up into four groups. They're quarreling into four groups. One group was all about Jesus. That's the group you should be. The other one was all about Peter. One was about Apollos, and one was about Paul. They divided up because they were, they were going, they were attaching themselves to different people. In fact, St. Jerome, who's a historian, um, wrote that Apollos was so dissatisfied with the division of this church that he retired until the division came back together, and it came back together because of this letter that was written by Paul. So this church is splitting, and Paul calls them out on it, and Paul talks about some are with Paul and some are with Apollos, and he continues on with verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul is calling them out. He's saying, listen, who cares about Paul? Who cares about being team Apollos? Who cares about any of that? We are just the people who are talking about the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all that we are. So this is like a farmer plants a seed and a farmer can water the seed. God is the one who makes it all grow. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who makes it all grow. Paul and Apollos are through whom these people have believed, but they should not be on whom they have believed. 
continues on to the last two verses we'll look at. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Some plant, some water. It's all the same purpose. We are co-worked in God's service and the God, and so that God's kingdom will be glorified. And this example of the church in Corinth is the same example I see all throughout our country specifically when it comes to the church. It's the same thing I see. I see it just like I, they saw it back then. We stake our claim at a local church and we look at the church that, that we don't attend as our enemy and as our competition and we divide ourselves up into fractions because of it. What if we change how Paul said, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? What if we change that to, who is Impact Church? Who is Crossroads 140? Who is St. Paul's? Who is South Carroll? Who is it? As you may know, um, I'm a big football guy. I'm also a big baseball guy. Um, and I just by the way, this is not to do anything, but um, the Orioles are going to make the playoffs this year. They should go to the World Series. Yep. I just need you to know. I just need you to know. I just need you to know. If they don't make the World Series, please don't contact me. I'm going to be depressed, okay? I'm going to be crying, okay? I'm going to be in, in need of help, okay? Just so you know. If they do in the World Series, I will also be very emotional because um, I love baseball. Anyways, okay. So I'm a Ravens fan. Let's imagine. I'm a Ravens fan because I like teams that win. And so I root for the Ravens. Let's say too many churches, too many churches look at other churches as their competition. Let's say um, that churches look at it the way the Ravens look at the Steelers. A lot of times that's what happens. So we operate like we're playing another team and we're trying to win. But when we actually are competing with other churches, what we're actually doing is we are on the same team. We're just sabotaging ourselves. So imagine if uh, the Ravens are playing the Steelers and Lamar is about to score a touchdown and our wide receiver, Odell Beckham, comes and tackles Lamar instead. You would say, what are you doing? The Steelers would have done, wouldn't have to do anything, would they? They'd just be like, I'm going to sit back. You guys are going to defeat yourselves, so I'll just let you do it yourself. And that's what we see churches doing constantly. We think that we're just being competitive with a church across the street or with another church that there's some, there's some things we don't necessarily agree with theologically because there's some things with the denomination or whatever else. So we just think we're just being competitive that way when really we're tackling our own team and hurting ourselves and the enemy's winning because of it. That's what's happening. I see churches do it all the time. Now, there's nothing wrong with joining a local church. In fact, the Bible calls us to join and be part of a local body. And you will use your preferences, your likes and your dislikes, and you will use the people that you meet to decide what church you're going to be a part of. There's nothing wrong with that. The healthiest thing for you to do is to find a local church that you can attend, that you can commit to, that you can work and you can serve at. That's the healthiest thing. I'm not pushing anything against being part of any church. I'm not doing that. But we must avoid huddling up like cliques who can only grow if the church next to us isn't growing. We are far more united in purpose than divided by our differences. We cannot begin to start shift our thinking away from that competitive spirit that we naturally have. We cannot do that unless we shift our model. Because for some of us, we've just been part of the business model of church for too long. We need to shift our model. So what are some differences? What are some differences between the business model of church versus the biblical model? I'm going to give you three. There's a lot more, but I'm going to give you three. The business model is all about our kingdom, impact kingdom. The biblical model is about God's kingdom. The book of Matthew, Jesus asked um, his disciples, um, hey, what are, what are people saying about me? What's the word on the street about me? And his disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Moses. And then he goes, okay, well, what do you guys say? And I imagine the disciples get a little quiet because Jesus at times would ask some trick questions to figure something out so they don't really say much. And then Peter, Simon Peter steps up and he goes, 
Um, you're the Messiah. The one that we read about in the Old Testament who said was coming to save us, that's you. You are the Messiah, the one who was sent to, to change everything, to save this world. Jesus tells him, that's right. And then he gives him a unique mission. Look at the mission he gives him, Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. One very small word there that I want to point out to you. My church. He didn't say, Peter, I'm going to build your church. It's going to be Peter's church, first Peter's church of the Nazarene. It's not, that's not what he said. So no, I'm going to build my church through you. What if, instead of just simply trying to build our own congregation, we change to building Christ's church? Um, Pew Research Center um, does many reports on church and Christianity all throughout the world. And I was reading some reports that were specifically about America this week. And here's some things that I, that I learned this week. Uh, less people than ever are professing in America to be Christians. And they're actually projecting that that number is going to fall below 50%, which would be the first time that's ever happened in America. It's going to fall below 50% if the trends continue by the year 2070. That's, the tr that's what they're predicting if the trends continue. Most mainline churches and church denominations are declining. Most of them are. So let me give you some stats. In the past 20 years, the Baptist church has decreased by 21%. Methodist Church has decreased by 24%, and the Episcopal Church has decreased by 32%. Most, most mainline churches are decreasing. The churches that we find are increasing, the churches that are increasing in America, are church plants and non-denominational churches. Those are the ones, according to the Pew Research Center, that's increasing. But here's what they found. They, don't, they are finding that they aren't increasing because they're finding more people that don't know Jesus to come. They're increasing because people are leaving these other churches just simply to come to their church. That's why they're increasing. They're not finding that this massive movement is happening and all these people are actually, less people that know Jesus today more than ever. The churches that are increasing is because people are leaving other churches and coming to that one. If we follow the business model, we would say that's a good thing. Best man wins, right? That's capitalism at its finest. Hey, it's all, it, hey, if we have the better product, then you come to us. That's, it is what it is. And if you leave that church and that church fails, you weren't doing it right anyway, so come to us. That would be the business model. We'd say, hey, it is what it is. But the biblical model would say that when the church across the street doesn't do well, we're not doing well. When the church down the street succeeds, we're succeeding. Why? Because we are the same church. We are the same team. Attracting Christians from other churches while never reaching people far from God is like running out of food in your house. You go to your pantry and you see all this food you don't have and you go, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. So you take all the food and you just spread it out throughout the house. You're like, oh, look, I have a lot of food now because it's in different rooms. It's like, no, you need to go to the grocery store and you need to harvest a new crop or you're not going to eat. That's what's happening. Christianity isn't growing in America because we are too busy shifting Christians around instead of telling other people, loving other people that God has put in our path by the hope that saves them and bringing them in. Christianity is growing in some areas, though. It's growing in China, growing in Afghanistan, and the reason why it's growing in those areas is not because Christians keep shifting. It's because they are going out and finding new Christians. They are going out and preaching the message of hope and grace that saves all of us. The church cannot be about the impact kingdom. If the church is about our kingdom, then, then we, all we should be doing is just going to other churches and saying, hey, come over here. You should do that. But that's not the point. We are not following a business model at church. We are following a biblical model. Our mission is to expand God's kingdom so when any church grows in this area, it's a, it's a success, whether it's here or not. That's number one. Second business model is all about numbers, where the biblical model is about depth. 
Jesus' ministry and miracles attracted people. Once word got out about him and this is a guy who was healing all these people, people started showing up to, to hear what he has to say. During Jesus' ministry, he tells, uh, John records this, he tells his disciples that he was going to die and be raised again three days later. And I actually like the way John records it. It's in uh, John chapter 2. He actually says um, that we didn't believe him until it happened. It, he has that in John chapter 2. He says, yeah, he told us he was going to come back to life. And we didn't understand what he was talking about. And then he actually did it. We're like, oh, that's what he meant when he said that I'm going to die and come back to life. So he's, he's talking to, to his disciples about this. And here's what John records directly after that, starting in verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus, being the Son of God, knew their hearts. He knew the people. They were gathering for the spectacle. They were gathering for the miracles. But he knew that they weren't all gathering because of him. So when a large number of people started showing up to follow Jesus, he didn't think, man, well, I must be doing something right. Man, this, this is really working. No, he got suspicious. He said, oh, they must not understand what I'm talking about. He didn't allow the number of people around him to distract him from the mission that he had. He was not dependent on man's approval. And we get this wrong constantly. Just these past few weeks, um, I've met with like four or five different people. I had a, a pastor meeting on Friday with people in our, our denomination. Uh, I've gotten lunch with some other pastors who are starting other churches that are trying to um, figure out things to do. And I heard this four or five times um, just the past couple weeks. I heard this, man, your church looks like it's going really well. It looks like there's a lot of people there. I've heard that four or five times. Or I've heard, man, the parking lot's full. You guys must be doing really well. They've never been inside here. They don't know whether we're a healthy church or not. They only know one thing. There's people that have been showing up, so you must be doing something right. And then I also hear this all the time. That church isn't doing well. Their attendance is declining like crazy. That church is, I don't know, that's, that's something wrong with that church. They lost all their attendance. See, I kind of look at church attendance like weight. Does your weight actually tell you whether you're healthy or not? No. You can be 140 pounds and be bulimic. You can be 300 pounds and be a bodybuilder. Your weight doesn't actually tell you whether you're a healthy person or not. Churches can be big or small for all the right reasons. And they can also be big and small for all the wrong reasons. We need to push away the conclusion that bigger means more successful or that we're healthier and smaller means we're not being successful. That's a business mindset. That's not a biblical mindset. I like how theologian um, Leslie uh, Newbigin says it. He says it like this. Reviewing then the teaching of the New Testament, one would have to say that on one hand, there is joy in rapid growth of the church in, the, in its earliest days. But that, on the other hand, there is no evidence that the numerical growth of the church is a matter of primary concern. There is no shred of evidence in Paul's letters to suggest that he judged the churches by the measure of their success in rapid numerical growth, nor is there anything comparable to the strident cries of some contemporary evangelists that the salvation of the world depends on the multiplication of believers. There is an incomparable sense of seriousness and urgency as the apostle contemplates the fact that he and all people must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And as he acknowledges the constraint of Jesus' love and the ministry of reconciliation that he has received. But this nowhere appears as either an anxiety or an enthusiasm about the numerical growth of the church. What if here at Impact we celebrated things a little differently? What if we looked at depth instead of numbers? Let me give you some examples. I like when new people come. If you're new today, I I'm glad you're here. I like that. I like when new people come. I like when new people move to this area and they're looking for a church and they find comfort 
uh, in this church, and they start to come. I like when, um, uh, when someone gets really hurt at one church, and they're able to find recovery at this church. I like that. That's a number. I like that. But I love and I celebrate when you bring a friend or family member that you've been praying about for a long time, that you've been doing life with, that you've been ministering to in your life, when you finally bring them, and they show up, and they're like, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff, but I'm going to come. If you want me to come, I'll just show up. Because I know what happens, by the way, when you start to do that. Eventually, you meet Jesus. That's what always happens. But I, I love when that happens. That's depth. I like when new people come. I love when you evangelize to your friends and your neighbors. I like when you all give to this church. I, I like when we are able to stick to our budgets, when we're able to do ministry well because of your generosity. I like that. That's a number. But I really love when someone who has never given before takes the hard sacrifice and the hard step to say, you know what? I'm going to put God first in my finances, and even if it's just 1% and it's not a lot, I'm going to do that because I want to put God first in every area of my life, and that includes my money. I love that. That's depth. I like when church is full. I like it. It's, it, it feels good. It's easy to worship when there's a lot of people singing together. Um, I, I, there's something about worship being together. I, I like that. That's a number. But I love when people that attend get plugged in in a deeper way. I love when you invite someone else in this congregation over to your house and you build a relationship with them. I love when you take the extra inconvenient steps to start serving, to start attending groups, to become an owner. I love when you become part of a family that's deeper. That's depth. We aren't about numbers. We're about depth. And then the last one. The business model says it's all about entertainment. The biblical model says it's about truth. The goal of this Sunday morning service is not to entertain you. Now, I'm not against having good worship. I think we should have good worship. I think it honors God when we do things with excellence. I'm not against having practical sermons that you can leave here and feel like that you weren't bored the whole time and that you were able to understand something. I'm not against doing events. We do events. We did the five-year celebration. We're doing, in November, we're going to have a fall day where we're going to celebrate fall because fall is the best season. We're going to have a lot of fun stuff here. I, I, I love, I, I'm not against doing any of that stuff. Actually, I would even say, I think it's a sin for us to bore you here. Like, we, the, if we are able to take the gospel message of Jesus, the gospel message that was so revolutionary thousands of years ago that it, it, it changed everything. This Jesus guy showed up, and when, he, when the established religious order was all about making themselves feel good, he comes in and he feeds the poor and he feeds the sick, and everyone else that society says is worthless, that's who he cared about, and he revolutionized everything. He eventually dies on the cross, comes back to life three days later, and the disciples take that message that they didn't actually believe initially because they would have been at the grave waiting for him to come out, told him he was coming back. When they finally see it, they all took this message of, of love and hope and grace to the world, and they died terrible deaths for it. Thousands of years later, we're still here celebrating the gospel message. For us to take that message and make it boring is a sin. We should never make it boring. Jesus used analogies. He used parables. He used sayings when he preached. He wasn't boring. However, we as a church should never put an emphasis on entertaining you rather than preaching God's truth. When we reduce this gathering as simply an entertainment venue, we aren't enhancing the church. We're actually diminishing the church. When I look at um, the church in Acts chapter 2, which is the, the closest um, resemblance of what we're doing right now, when I look at that church, what I see in that church, I don't see any emphasis on entertainment. What I see is an emphasis on living out God's truth, on evangelism, on loving the community, and on discipleship. That's what I see. 
I don't want you to be bored when you're here. I don't want that to happen. But I am far more concerned about you leaving here knowing a little more about Jesus and having next steps that you can take to start to look a little more like Jesus. Even if that means preaching hard messages. We cannot ever sacrifice God's truth for the sake of entertainment. So here's what I want to tell you. As your pastor, here's some things. I, I saw this years ago. Um, a pastor write these down. I wrote all these down, and I read these from time to time. I'm going to read them to you. As your pastor, here's what I constantly remind myself as I help lead this church. That I, as your pastor, will never undermine the truth of the gospel for a better Sunday morning show. That I, as your pastor, will never preach an easy version of a hard biblical truth. That I, as your pastor, will never forget the privilege that it is for me to be up here and preach the gospel to you. Because it is a privilege. That I, as your pastor, will never use the gospel to promote any kind of ulterior motives. Whether it's a motive just to build the kingdom of impact, whether it's a political motive, I would never use this platform to promote anything else but the gospel to you. And I, as your pastor, will never denounce your sin while avoid dealing with my sin. We don't want to bore you, but we care far more about you hearing God's truth rather than being entertained. Truth is greater than entertainment. Depth is greater than numbers. And his kingdom is far greater than any kingdom we can make here. So as we look for the next five years, I'm going to give you a little sneak peek of where we're trying to go. Two things that we're really trying to do over the next five years. Um, the first one is church planning. You've already kind of gotten a little bit of a taste of church planning. We had Temi here uh, a little while ago. We, as you do not know, we were a church plant from five years ago. And um, some churches supported us in a very real way. They sacrificed for us to be here. So all the numbers we talked about last week, we can put that right to those churches that supported us. Those numbers that we had are their numbers. Because without their sacrifice, without their giving, we would not be here. We're five years in. We're doing well. We're, we're able to meet all of our budgets. It's time for us to plant some churches. Uh, at the end of October, Pastor Brian Remp will be here. Um, if you've been here for a little while, you may know him. He would preach every October. He was uh, the pastor at a church called New Beginning. And uh, he just left that church, and he's planning a new church in Frederick. Frederick's the fastest-growing city in Maryland. It's going to be the biggest city in Maryland um, over Baltimore City in the next 10 years, is what they're predicting. So he's planning a church up there. We are going to help. We're going to support. So he's going to come here at the end of October. Next year, we're going to budget to actually financially support them in a very real way. Because whatever they do in Frederick is a win for us. So we're going to sacrifice what we have in order to make other churches grow. Because it's not about us, it's about other kingdoms. And then uh, the other thing that we're very infant stage of this, I've talked about this before, um, so don't get too excited by, about this, but um, we've talked about it in, in the past. But our goal, I hear this all the time, almost every, I hear it a lot. Uh, people say, hey, so when are you going to buy a building? I hear that all the time. When are you going to buy a building? Like, church is growing a little bit, so we should, buy a, we should think about buying a building. And I do want to buy a building. However, I don't want to buy a building that we meet in. Our goal is to buy a building that helps the community. It's called an outreach center. Some of the things we want in there, we want a pregnancy center. We do a lot with pregnancy centers. Um, we, we want help with recovery. We already do a lot with that. Food pantry, anything else. Even our denomination talks to us about immigration and, and things like that. We want a place where if the community needs help, they go in there. Here's what we've learned. If someone is pregnant and needs help, and they go to a place that's a church, it's going to be a hindrance to them. So it's not going to look like a church. When they come in, they're not going to know it's us. They're not going to be invited or get a track to come to Impact Church next Sunday. If they want to know about it, we'll tell them about it. But our goal is just for them to feel loved 
and this community feel loved by what we do. We may still meet here while we have a building over there that we don't meet in. That is how we're going in the future. I am at, I have no interest in figuring out a system to build this church that we can buy a big state-of-the-art building one day. I would love to meet there. I would love to be able to set that up on a Sunday and do that. Maybe we'll do that, but that's not the main goal. The goal is to help the community to make it about other kingdom. When we go to the food pantry, they don't know it's us. We don't tell them, hey, Impact Church is also here, even though we're asking about We don't do that because we want them to feel loved and connected no matter where they are. That is where we are going in the future. That is what we're looking at. Both of those things are going to help us because we're going to be a healthier church because of it. But if we're trying to just be the biggest church possible, this is a, the wrong business model. And that's the point. We're not trying to follow a business model. We're trying to follow a biblical model. Now, I tell you all this not to get too excited. We don't, it's not like we have, I don't have an announcement next week of a building. Here's why I really tell you this. Because some of you heard that and think, oh, I have some ways I can help with that. I know some things that we can do with that. And please come talk to me. Because here's what I've learned, and, and we've talked to the treasurer and finance team. Um, I don't, I'm overwhelmed with the idea of this because I have no idea where to start, okay? So if you know where to start, come talk to me. We already have some people that we're, we're talking to. But at the end of the day, I want this community to be better because we are here. And I don't want the community to be better so that we grow. I want the community to be better because we have preached the gospel in a real way. And if because of what we do at this church, that all the other churches in this area grow and not us, then that is a huge win and I'm all for it. That is our goal of the church. That is where we are going in the future. That is what we need to do. I don't want to follow a business model. I want to follow a biblical model. Because the biblical model says it's not about our kingdom, it's about his kingdom. So as we get ready to, to close out this series, worship team, you can start coming up and get ready. Um, I think there's no better way to start to prepare for the next five years for whatever God has in store for us than by taking communion together. So I want to take some time as we close out this series um, and we sing this song to take communion together. Now, just in case you're new and haven't seen us do communion here, um, we believe that communion is just a way for us to reflect on the grace that God has given us, on the death of, that he gave to save each one of us. You do not have to be an owner at Impact Church. This does not even have to be your church home or take communion. We just ask that you be a follower of Christ. And if you want to become one, this is a step you can take in order to do that. It's a way for us to reflect on the sacrifice that God made for each single one of us. And now we have a mission because of that sacrifice. So, worship team, they're going to play this closing song. As I play this closing song, I'm going to invite you to go to the back. The host team is, will be ready for you to grab your elements. Come take a seat. You can just hold it in your seat. Uh, but don't take it yet. We will do it together as a church family at the end. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to take communion together. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the mission that you've given this church. And dear God, I pray that you help us to not get distracted, help us to not get competitive, help us to not make it about our kingdom, but help us to take the steps you want us to take so that your kingdom grows because of it, because this community becomes better because of what we do, that more people know the saving grace that only you can offer us. Thank you for the mission that you've given this church. Help us to live it out obediently in what we do. In your son's name, amen. So let's grab our elements and then we'll take it together after the song's over.